You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast, episode 167. Avasti swabs! Are the space javelin be taken over again this week, just like in January, on account of the regular crew has scurvy? Well, not all of the regular crew. I'm still here. <laughs> what you just heard is Charles's dramatic interpretation of his and my appearance on the Apple Insider podcast this week. And it's a busy week, so let's uh, skip more of the pirate impersonations and let's get right to it. <laughs> but I love talk like a pirate yeah, day. It's my I know. favorite. Oh, all right, fine. Nice to be back on the Apple Insider podcast. Thanks, everybody. There is so much to talk about. Might as well just get right to it. The first thing that I want to talk about is that Mike was right. Now, this is something I say a lot because he often is. And this time it was about something that we've talked about on that other podcast I previously mentioned. Mike has been saying for some time that just because Apple said that a Mac Pro wasn't coming this year, meaning 2017, did not mean that it was actually coming in 2018. Well, surprise, surprise, surprise. Today, Apple confirmed that Mike was right. Yeah, what's going on is, let me give you the straight quote, and this is from Tom Boger, who is the Apple Senior Director of Mac Hardware Product Marketing. Earlier today, he said that we want to be transparent and communicate openly with our pro community, so we want them to know that the Mac Pro is a 2019 product. It's not something for this year. There you go. Just rolling this back a little bit here, what happened last year at about this time is Eddie Q and Craig Frederighi spoke with some select members of the press and said that the iMac Pro is coming with server-grade components this year, meaning 2017, and it did. It came out in the final days of 2017, and a Mac Pro and displays are coming, but not this year. Yep. At Apple Insider, we had a big chat about it, about what exactly that meant, and back last year, we made about the wrong guess on that. We were both hoping, both uh, Neil Hughes and I were hoping that it was going to be in 2018 at some point, but this is official. This is straight from the horse's mouth, and that is that and i don't think that this means anything specifically other than the product is coming in 2019 there's already a lot of social media speculation that that imac pro sales are dropping that does not appear to be the case it appears that they've been fairly steady since they launched and very good and i also think it's important to note that the imac pro and the mac pro in whatever forms it arrives in is not aimed at exactly the same classification of user mm -hmm. the imac pro was very much built as an appliance computing device where, okay, IBM needs 5,000 leads. Let's get them to them. And they put them on 5,000 desks and they never see the light of day again other than software. Whereas the Mac Pro, they keep on using the word modular and we'll talk about that in a minute too. Yeah. The Mac Pro is intended for, they keep on talking about the pro workflow team that they just made for this product which is led by John Turnus, who's been with Apple for a long time as well, mm. and how they've got creatives that they've brought on to build workflows for the machine and to test it and hammer on the machine and figure out where the bottlenecks in performance are, whether it's in the OS or in the drivers or in the application or in the silicon, and then, quote, run it to ground to get it fixed. Yep. So it sounds very exciting, and I have to say they mentioned visual effects, video editing, 3D animation, and music production, all in their description of the kinds of things that their teams are looking at, which would suggest to me that the iMac Pro still has a place with pros even after this thing is out. Because, for example, I think the iMac Pro is literally the ultimate photo editing 
and maybe even video editing machine. Charles and I have both worked for Apple service a lot in the past. We've done a lot of times on both sides of the counter in this regard. Mm -hmm. And back in the heyday of the G5 and the G4 and the Mac Pro is we would get machines in that the door had never been opened. The vast majority of them were like that. So people saying that Apple needs an upgradable computer, an easily upgradable computer, that's arguable. It, I, I'm glad it's coming. Don't get me wrong. I've got my hand comfortably on my 5.1 Mac Pro that I've boosted well past the laws of thermodynamics should reasonably accommodate. <laughs> but I think that Apple Insider readers have a tendency to miss the forest for the trees, that what we need is not necessarily what everybody needs. And like I said, it's good that they're making this, but, and like we're talking about, there are different market segments that we're shooting at here. Now let's talk about modular for a minute though. At no point, at zero points, has Apple said PCIe anywhere in this discussion. Mm -hmm. Not one single time. I think that they very carefully choose their words. I think they very carefully chose them in April. I think they very carefully chose them in this interview. True. And I think if they wanted to say PCIe expansion cards, I think they would have done so already. I think they're using the word modular intentionally. Yeah. It is yet to be determined what exactly that means. But I'm concerned that everyone's getting jacked up for this box full of PCIe slots. And yeah, mm, I'm thinking no. Or just drawers that you can slide out the GPU and replace it or just a drawer where you can slide out the CPU and replace it. I don't know. They did give us a tiny bit more information, which is this. They said this. Turnus specifically said this. There is absolutely a need in certain places for modularity. Ah. But it's also really clear that the iMac form factor or the MacBook Pros can be exceptionally good tools. Yes, I think that custom trays for processors and things are possible. I wouldn't put it past Apple to have some kind of custom assembly with the heatsink and the tray like they used to have with the old Mac Pro, but just with something a little more fused. It wouldn't surprise me at all if there's a socket that isn't user fixable at all on this, if if the chips are just with BGA, just straight on the board. Right. Yeah. So I don't want people to get super excited about this Mac Pro thinking that they're going to get this machine with four processor slots and 16 conventional RAM slots and all these other things. I just don't I just don't think that's going to happen. One thing I do want to mention is that despite some talk to the contrary, and we'll come back to that in a second. Uh, this next machine, this Mac Pro that we're talking about for next year is going to run on Intel chips, I promise you. And thus, as I was saying last week, if you want to know what's coming, the best place to look at the moment is not Apple, but actually Intel. See where they're going with their chips for 2019. Then you'll start to get some idea of where we might be going, at least with the processor on this new forthcoming unit. There's a lot going on here with this, and we're not even going to do an organized segue. We're just going to kind of mesh right into the whole next piece here. Mark Gurman over at Bloomberg made a not-so-fearless prediction that there are going to be ARM Macs in 2020. And that's not This isn't from some magical source that he's derived or anything like that. This has been talked about for a long time, and this has been talked about the developer community for a long time. And looking at the benchmarks of the A-series processors, which may not necessarily be what's used, there may be a different desktop class processor, the benchmarks are compelling. There's a real reason for Apple to switch to these processors. In the low-end Max, yeah. In the low-end Max. Right. And I think that's the point that's getting missed here. It sure is. It's not going to be an overnight shift like it was for PowerPC from 68K, and it's not going to be a a one-and-a-half-year shift 
like it was for Intel. Right. People seem to think that on day one, Apple had a pile of Intel hardware. Well, they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> they also had a very new development environment called Xcode for Intel, which helped reduce the friction a little bit. And now that that's essentially de rigueur for iOS and the Mac, I, I think that will continue to reduce the friction on any shift ARM processors. Yeah. There's a lot that Intel can still bring to the table, but not necessarily in the low-end chips. And there's a lot that ARM chips can bring to the table, but not necessarily in the high-end chips. Yeah. So for a while, I think there's going to be this overlap, like there used to be. Like with 68K to PowerPC, if you had 68K software, you needed to run absolutely as fast as possible. You'd stick with one of the Quadras mm -hmm. until the day came where they migrated over to their PowerPC code. And wow, this is loads faster. I'm just going to stick with this. And the same thing happened with Intel. For a little while, you would stick with your PowerPC hardware because it was running, for instance, Photoshop a whole lot faster. Right. Until the day your software migrated over and then you shifted your Intel hardware. Yeah. I think that this in many ways is going to be even more protracted than that. It's going to depend on a lot on what Intel does. We're on like the fourth talk <laughs> at least in their TikTok thing that they had going on for about seven years. It's we're just talk, 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 talk. We still don't have a processor suitable for the MacBook pro or the MacBook for that matter, that will address DDR, LPDDR4 RAM. Right. So these upcoming chips that we've been talking about over an Apple Insider, the uh, i9 and the latest eighth generation cores, they can't do 32 gig either, you guys. Sorry. Well, they can with DDR RAM, with DDR4 RAM, but that would require an entirely new memory system with a controller chip, which would take more power, which is... And thicker and bigger. And thicker. And I understand, again, I understand that we, meaning Apple, Apple Insider readers are fine with another couple of millimeters on their laptops, but you know who isn't? Yeah. The other 99.5% of the Apple using public. The buyers, basically. So the rest of the buyers that are not us. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've got my 2016 here. I'm very happy with it. Thunderbolt 3 is a game changer. Would have liked 32 gig of RAM for future proofing, but I'm aware of what the problem is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm aware of what the situation is and the technical challenges involved there. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that have to happen between now and 2020 for the ARM processors to take the center stage in the low end max. But if you don't think the writing's on the wall and you're already thinking about, well, I don't, I shouldn't buy a MacBook Pro about that, you're, you're making the wrong decision in that regard. Yeah. If you need your machine now, then buy it now. It's not like it's not going to be magically supported in 2020. Well, exactly. And the other thing is, frankly, this report from Mark Gurman surprised me in that I frankly expected ARM chips to start appearing in the low-end MacBooks next year at the latest. So 2020 is a ways off now. Yeah, Charles has always guessed, in our other venue, Charles has always guessed 2019. I've always said 2020. Mm. I just don't see it happening before then for a couple of different reasons. I think this is related to the Project Marzipan thing that he started talking about about six months ago now. Yes. And there's also been talk about fat binaries and things like that in the Xcode community. So, Which follows. Uh, there's no reason yeah. not to do it. It all sort of pieces together, really. This has all happened before, and I guarantee you, before we're all in the ground, it's going to happen again after the arm shift. I guarantee you. Why this has taken the Mac community by such surprise, I'm not quite clear on. It's because of that impression that in January 2020, all of Apple's Mac computers are going to run on ARM processors. And that's just not the case. Well, let me give you another little tidbit here. 1984 to 1994, mm -hmm. the first shift in the Mac, 10 years. Right. 1994 to 2006. That's 12 years. Mm -hmm. 2006 to 2020, that's 14 years. Yep. So now we are currently in our third architectural shift, and we'll have been in it the longest. And that's even assuming 
that everything is shifted over overnight. Right. And I again, I think this will take years to fully roll out. And on the very high end, I don't foresee ARM chips, even as much progress as Apple is making with them, which has been, frankly, astonishing and a very underreported element of Apple's business. But I still don't see them overtaking the high end for a long time. I might be dead by the time that happens. <laughs> Well, that's conceivable, I guess. I, that's a little too far in the future that I'd rather, I'd rather not make prognostications on that just now, yeah. if that's okay with you. So you don't want me dead. Well, that's good. I mean, this is an interesting conversation to have. And I think as Mac users, I think that what we're going to realize is the entire shift to the entire line is going to happen. Like one of our forumers said, it's going to happen when the high-end customers start complaining that it hasn't happened for them yet. Right. I think that's when that's the final days. I don't think this Mac Pro rumor has anything to do with the ARM shift at all. No, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, this has got 100% to do with the MacBook and maybe the Mac Mini. But honestly, I haven't heard word one about the Mac Mini since last year at this time. And all they said then was that it was important. Not even our usual sources. Nothing. There is nothing on this. It's weird. So who knows? But on the other hand, it's a lot easier to hide the production of a million Mac Minis than it is 60 million iPhones. Yeah. And I don't think that's linear. I, I think that as you go up in the millions of productions, I think it's exponentially harder to keep it a secret. Speaking of which, you've brought up an interesting point. And this is something that all of us enthusiasts need to remember. And that is that the Mac Pro at its best this thing that's coming out in 2019 will still sell in the low single digits of Max. We actually have a little clarification on that. I've asked some questions about that with some of our sources. Phil Schiller said last year at this time that the Mac Pro accounts for low single digit percentage. And that's not just in April of last year. That is across the entire line. Yeah. That's from 2016. Right. I would have guessed about 2%. Well, honestly, I would have thought that the 2499 quad-core 2.66 Mac Pro, the first one that they shipped out, I would have thought that that would have sold many more than that. Well, I'm sure it did for a brief period, but I don't think it. Uh, everybody who was waiting bought one, and that was that. Yeah. But the average overall is very low, and this new Mac Pro is not going to change that. It's still going to be a niche machine. Yeah, I want to be absolutely clear about this. I am glad that Apple's doing this. Oh, yeah. But expecting that this is going to create a lot of halo effect with people, uh, buyers, I don't think that's going to happen. No. I just don't, and I'm sorry to say that, but I think that's the nature of the machine. If Apple can make the pros happy, great. But the Mac is not going to come back into the focus as the center of Apple's business. It's just no. No, no, no way. Not even with the iPad numbers is the Mac going to come back in the focus for Apple. There's just no way. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's move on to some other news. Big news. Apple has poached, I guess it's poaching season now, Google's chief of artificial intelligence and machine learning, John Giandrea, to help with the self-driving car avionics, to broaden Siri, to do all kinds of genius things, because apparently he's a big brain. There is a lot going on here. This is quietly one of the biggest pieces of news for Apple this year. And why it's not getting talked about that much, I really don't know, because this is giant. People are complaining that Siri doesn't do this and Siri doesn't do that, and Apple's artificial intelligence is behind Google. Well, guess who was in charge of it? Yeah. This, this guy. guy was in charge of it over at Google. This is an amazing hire. And he actually has connections from Apple back in the day. Yeah. Worked for General Magic, for example, which was a bunch, whole bunch of Apple employees. Yep. So this is an amazing poach. And how this went down was even more amazing. Google said on Monday that he was stepping down from his role as chief of search and chief of artificial intelligence. And the spokesperson over there said, well, he's staying at Google and just going to mess around with technology more. Mm-hmm. 
Tuesday. Yeah, he's messing around with technology. He's messing around with our technology. <laughs> and Tuesday, Tim Cook sent an email to staff members why he was coming and that he was going to report directly to him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So much for the Google spokesperson. I mean, I don't yeah, even right? think that they knew that he was headed to Apple. Yeah. Maybe. They've got their own issues to worry about, quite frankly, and we, we weren't going to touch on this really, but we just want to say to all the people over at Google, we are so sorry about the shooting that happened, and, and particularly for the YouTube people, but of course this affects all of Google and our heart goes out. Oh, I know. Getting back to Jay Andrea, though, I don't know that he's going to be Mr. Fix-It for everything that we perceive as not going as well as it could at Apple. But Apple has been making a rush of hires lately, both on the, the self-driving initiative as well as Siri. They've been hiring widely on both of these areas, and that's because these areas, or at least Siri, we all know, need some improvement. And this guy was running the Google Assistant, which arguably in quite a few areas is better than Siri. He also handled gmail some of the search business and he was chief of artificial intelligence yeah and you said that to a big brain I, I, that's yeah. that's the best way to describe it this is an amazing hire and i keep on beating the drum about this that this is gonna pay big dividends down the road well if we can keep him that's the thing right apple's culture very different than google's culture and there have been times when people have been hired for apple and it didn't work out so i'm really hoping this works out but yeah this is going to be an amazing thing that is really going to help apple's direction in the next few years. Mm -hmm. And we are entering a crucial period. 2020 is a handy benchmark, but it has been mentioned for a wide number of things that are coming in the future that we think Apple's going to materialize in 2020. So this guy, I think, is going to be a senior vice president. He's reporting directly to Cook. This is going to be a huge deal if we can keep him. Yep, sure is. Let's move on to a weird story. Okay, first, Apple Music has hit 40 million paid subscribers. This is great. It's growing very quickly. It's growing faster than Spotify, but it's going to take quite a long time for them to catch up to Spotify. Kind of not the point, really. But the reason I mention that is because one of the ways in which Apple seems to attract paid users is through some exclusives or at least through some special events. And The weekend had a new track out. And so that was a big special event. Apple, as usual, reported how many streams that they had for it. And it was something like six and a half or six million, six and a half million, something like that. And the record company that owns the track said that was more than Spotify, even though Spotify has lots more listeners than Apple. So that was kind of odd. And then <laughs> Spotify comes out and goes, no, 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 you're wrong. We had 7.5 million, way more than Apple. Yeah. It's a very strange story, but here's the oddest part about it. Spotify now says that they had 7.5 million streams, but their own album charts say six and a half million. Um, okay. And the record company, Republic, the weekend's record label said 6.5 million streams over 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Well, that was their second number. They originally said about 4 million. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of confusion here. And even so, if you compare this with Spotify's numbers versus Apple's 40 million, even though that Apple Music may or may not have pulled down a higher number, this is still a good thing for Apple. Yeah. This is more interaction with new singles that are promoted by Apple for for record labels. Yeah. Regardless. And just to give you some comparison on the numbers, on the overall numbers, by the way, Spotify has 71 million paid subscribers, although there's some dispute about how many of them are actually paying and how much they're paying, but okay. 71 million paid subscribers, 159 million active users. Apple Music has 40 million paid and generally speaking about 20 million on the trial at any given time. 
So roughly about half. So roughly about half. And they had very nearly the same amount of streams, even if Spotify's new numbers are accurate. Yeah. The thing is, is I can't imagine with Spotify facing lawsuits about not correctly reporting their play counts. Mm -hmm. I can't see where this helps them. No, there's three different numbers about how many streams they have. But hey, if you're the weekend, this has been a very good week for you. Yeah, they don't care one way or another. They're You're going to get a ton of money. Now that Spotify is claiming 7.5 million, they're going to have to pay you for 7.5 million streams weekend. I don't think you're going to feel your face for a long time, if you know what I'm saying. I think you do. Yeah, Spotify just went public, and, and that's great. But there's just a lot. There's just a lot of strangeness swirling around their reporting. So yeah, I want them to do fine. I want Apple Music to do fine. I even want Tidal to do fine. Because Apple in a vacuum, I don't like Apple in a vacuum. No, competition is good. And everybody keeps everybody else on their toes. That's the way it's supposed to work. We're big on that around here. Okay, shifting back for a second. We're going to have to talk about Facebook at some point, but I'm putting it off one more minute. The new iOS 11.4 beta. Yeah, I know I shift around a lot. The new 11.4 beta is just out and now it has AirPlay 2 back in it. It was in there briefly for the 11.3 beta and got stripped out and now it's back in 11.4. Let's see if it sticks around this time. Yep. This is its third appearance. It made a brief appearance back in the 11.1 days, I want to say. Oh, did it? Oh, yeah. wow. And then it came back in 11.3 and was ripped out ruthlessly. Yeah. Now it's back in 11.4. You know, what's the over under on if it's going to stay this time? <laughs> and some other features like messages in cloud, which I'm really looking forward to. AirPlay 2 is very highly anticipated, mostly for the HomePod, but it's actually going to have a lot of improvements for all users who use AirPlay for pretty much anything. But the thing I wanted to mention about this is Mike happened to report that when people were testing the AirPlay 2 feature in 11.4 on their devices, suddenly their old Airport Express, and I say old because it, I don't think it's really been seriously revised since 2012, but the Airport Express was showing up in the list as possibly compatible and then not working. So is it going to be compatible? Is Apple thinking about making that hardware compatible? Hard to say, but don't hold your breath is what I'm saying. Yeah, I've got a couple of, I think that this may just be an aberration of the testing process. I do too, yeah. On the other hand, it's possible given that there's HomeKit software authentication now. Mm -hmm. And given that AirPlay 2 is tightly integrated with HomeKit now, mm -hmm. I think it's possible that Apple could do something about an update for the Airport Express to use the digital audio converter on the device for audio streaming on this? You mean retroactively grant it HomeKit compatibility by which it can... Well, it would have to be a software patch. Yeah. It would obviously have to be a software patch. And the reason why I think this is just an aberration is this. The latest patch for the Airport Express shipped in December. That's right. There was no active forward-facing airplay 2 testing going on in december right the previous patch to the airport express was the previous december ah. and airplay 2 wasn't even announced yet so that means that anything to make the device get seen with airplay 2 would have had to have been introduced in december when there was no actual testing going on in developer facing betas mm, i see i'm just not sure that's a thing i'm just not sure that that's that's really going to happen We'll see. It would be good. It's all of a sudden going to fire up the secondary market on these things. Yeah. And to be perfectly clear, what this is, is this is not the first wall wart one. This is the actually the third generation. Yes, the one I have. That looks kind of like a white Apple TV. I set it up, I don't know how many years ago now, six years ago, 2012. Yeah. So six years ago, I set this thing up and I have had to unplug it and replug it in one time since then. That was the big selling point of airports for me. 
And I was very disappointed when I heard that Apple had disbanded the team. They only got them back together for a security threat last year. This is a strange situation, and now there's all of a sudden a lot of chatting about it. Yeah. The engineers, the development engineers have been scattered. I have confirmation from my own sources that the engineers who developed the airport series are scattered amongst Apple now. They're all over the place now. Right. Different projects. And some of them have left and, you know, the normal entropy. What remains is a small software team that told me very specifically that they would keep the hardware as safe as possible for as long as possible. Right. Does this mean we'll never see another airport? I don't know. But there doesn't appear to be any development on one right now. And like Charles said, the last improvements to the hardware, the last changes to the hardware were five years ago. So it sounds like the chances of us getting new airport hardware are slim. There's a possibility, although I think this is also pretty remote, that the firmware can be upgraded in such a way as to make it AirPlay 2 compatible. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing is, nope, this is the wall. We've hit it. We're very sorry. Since AirPlay 2 is not going to be a thing that everybody has to upgrade to immediately, the airports that we have, that I have, will continue to work until we finally decide that we really need to get on 802.11, whatever the letter is now, and we move on. (laughs) That's going to be a very sad day because frankly, I'm a tech. I know how to configure routers. And I used to make a fair amount of money helping people set up their routers because they're so darn complicated if they're not airports. And I would always tell people, if you really don't want to hassle with this, buy an airport. I know it costs twice as much. Just buy it. Finally, I took my own advice and got one myself (laughs) and have not had to think about that thing for six years. Even people with the knowledge sometimes just want it to just work. (laughs) I'm locked in in an airwave battle with my neighbors. I'm in a relatively thickly settled suburb of northern Virginia in my secret bunker here. And I can see, let me just pull the window down right now. Yeah, boom. There are... 31 wireless networks I can see from this window. I live in an apartment building, so there's probably a roughly comparable number here. I have set up a pyramid of power of, no kidding, airports. So I've got good signal now, and I guess to heck with my neighbors, I suppose. (laughs) Sure, sure, Mike glows at night. You can see him from space, but he's winning the power war. (laughs) Yeah, you can see me from space for other reasons, but... (laughs) So I'm using airport also. Yeah. And like Charles, I know how to set up the routers. I've done it before. You know, I do it occasion out in town now, but it's just given what else I have to deal with in the house. I've, I've stuck with the airports and, you know, people say, well, you know, there's no proof that they're going away. You you want to see them dead. I don't want to see them dead. I'd rather they stick around. I'd rather that we got new ones. Quite Me frankly. too. Because these are falling behind, right? Mine is an 802.11N. You're N, yep. Mine are AC because I've got the, the towers. Oh, okay. But yeah, the, the Express, the, the extenders, they didn't even bother. They just stuck on N. And the Airport Express specifically is the one that's been showing up in these AirPlay 2 tests, not the towers. Right. The tower does not have a headphone jack. Obviously. Now, Mike's tested this. What happens when you try to connect? Nothing. You can click on the button and it does nothing. It does absolutely zero. Okay. So it sees it. It just can't do anything. It sees it. It just doesn't bother connecting. And, you know, while we're kind of on the subject, I want to talk about something else. Sure. People are saying that AirPlay 2 is a no brainer. And why is this so hard? Because I can play to multiple speakers from my from my iTunes on my Mac. It's not the same thing. No. The AirPlay in your Mac, the multiple targets, multiple streaming targets, they don't care about synchronization. They don't care about timing. You could be five seconds behind on your Bluetooth speaker in your room, but across your Ethernet network is your receiver in your living room and it's playing an entirely different section of the song. 
So it makes no effort to synchronize those playbacks at all. Whereas AirPlay 2 does. AirPlay 2 acknowledges the source and figures out what exactly the latency is. So regardless of the type of speaker, you will get synchronized audio in all of your different rooms. That said, this has taken a lot longer than I think even Apple expected. Yeah, I think so too. I think that audio synchronization thing is an issue. I mean, you ask any audio engineer at any radio station ever. And they will tell you how complicated audio synchronization can be from different sources. While we're on the subject of the current iOS, I do want to mention very briefly a couple of issues that have come up that are not related to AirPlay. One of them is that in iOS 11.3, there is some problems with device management, including Jamf Pro. So be aware of this. There's a great article on it by Roger over at Apple Insider. Yep. Long story short, what's happening is if you tell a machine to update to iOS 11.3 through Jamf, is returning something to Jamf that Jamf doesn't understand. And so as such, Jamf can't send it any signals back for commands like lock to single application mode or anything like that. Right. The device still works. It's not bricked. But to clear it, you basically have to wipe the device and install iOS 11.3 manually until Jamf rolls out the patch. And the people at Jamf have said, basically, please don't upgrade until we get this patch out. But we are working on it. It's on the way. By the time you hear this, it might even be already out. Might be. Might be. Might be. Related to that, Apple's always tinkering with under the hood stuff on these updates. So Mac OS 10.13.4 breaks Duet Display and Air Display and USB Display Link drivers which is weird. I'm using a reflector and X Mirage to airplay over my screen, my iOS devices to my Mac, which then is connected to a HDTV or a projector when I'm doing presentations. That still works fine. But all these other things are totally broke. That's a little bit different approach. AirPlay is a different approach than than what Avatron and others were using. Well, and Duet Display is hardwired, of course. And Duet Display is hardwired, but they still both use Windows Server. They both use routines that Apple renovated for eGPUs. Yeah. They were using workarounds with Windows Server to get their applications to work. And that was the thing. Their technology was built on workarounds. Mm. Right. Looking at some of the exchanges on social media, as it turns out that users told them, hey, your software doesn't work this beta and they were told in exchange that well we don't support unreleased software right and i understand that this kind of thing is complicated but the thing is if you don't play by apple's rules sooner or later you're going to get burned yeah back in the day Dwayne blem had a game called stunt copter mm. and this is a really really old like macintosh operating system one kind of game i do remember stunt copter this yeah. was one of the very first games i ever played on a mac and it ran all the way it ran in classic in OS 10. Yeah. Because Dwayne followed the guidance to the letter, mm-hmm. followed everything Apple wanted them to do to the letter without deviating, without using undocumented APIs, without using workarounds. So this silly little game where you're dropping a guy from altitude into a hay bale worked for 25 years. <laughs> Yeah. When you do things like expect a certain resolution display or expect this response or expect this other response, because that's how it's always been. When Apple decides to do things like, well, hey, we're going to do eGPUs and we're going to mess around with Windows Server. Mm, it's going to pose a problem. So um, there's there's a lot of finger pointing going on here. But for me, and maybe they'll talk to me about this separately, I think this is 70% on the developers and 30% on Apple. Yeah. And I'm not super excited that they told users that we don't support unreleased software. I, I understand where they're coming from, but maybe saying, hey, great, thanks for letting us know this doesn't work. We'll try and get something released by the time it does. That would have been a human-friendly approach. <laughs> The people from Duet Display say they've got some sort of a workaround. The people from Display Link are saying, well, uh, we'll be with you as soon as we can. Please enjoy this old music. 
<laughs> the display link has had an issue for a long time. Yeah. The, the display link drivers only started working again in 10.13. Yeah. In high Sierra. They didn't work at all in Sierra for the longest time. So display link products, they use a very specific chipset. It's not like a USB-C to display port cable where the video protocol is baked into USB here. Yeah. So Mm, this is a bad situation. There are a lot of DisplayLink products out there. They're actually standalone monitors with DisplayLink. Right. And they don't work. If this is going to get fixed, I'm curious. I'm not certain that it is. Yeah. I also want to specifically mention Avatron because they tweeted something that I, uh, it raised a red flag with me. And that was that 10.13.4 introduces, quote, severe Windows Server bugs. Uh, no. I don't think so. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. They closed that workaround, that hack you were using. That's what was happening. Yeah. I mean, while there may very well be severe Windows Server bugs, this is, I think this may be operating as intended. Exactly. And Avatron was saying, hopefully Apple will fix 10.13.4 soon. No, they're not going to fix it for your problem. No, I don't think you so. need to fix no, that. That's, so. uh, yeah, that's, I think that's code for, we don't know when this is ever going to get fixed. So, but again, maybe something that the developers have fixed by Friday or even on Monday, if you're listening to this next week, mm-hmm. but at press time, there is no fix. So yeah, sorry. Take it as you will, I suppose. If you need Duet Display to be working, contact the developer there directly and they can possibly provide you with a workaround. Yeah, and be nice about it. Yeah, please. You can say that, hey, you heard about the problem in Apple Insider and you know, please let me know if you get this fixed, something like that. But yeah, don't do Twitter rants about it. Okay, Facebook. This story has more legs than a farm full of octopi. I don't even think we're halfway through on this. I don't think we're 10% of the way through this. This is just going to keep popping up. This is moving so fast that on Wednesday, Roger wrote a story for Apple Insider that said, now Facebook says that Cambridge Analytica may have collected data on up to 87 million people, almost all of whom were Americans. Cambridge Analytica came back and said, no, 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 we didn't. We only had 30 million, which is still an order of magnitude more than they were supposed to get. And now Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg says, nope, I think they have data on essentially Everybody. Yeah, I mean, Zuckerberg does not smell good with any of this either. And and the core issue here is this. Everyone's saying, well, this is only an issue because X party is in charge or Y party used it too. Why aren't you screaming about that? Well, you know what? I'm screaming about both of it. Yeah. This is not a political issue in any way. This is 100% not a political issue in any way. That's right. What this is, is Cambridge Analytica took their educational license to get data. They did a personality quiz for 300,000 Facebook users and then just rifled through all their contacts. Yeah, the, not just the people who took the quiz, but they then used that same license to exploit everybody they know. You know what? The 300,000 people that took the quiz or decided to take whatever, what two Marvel characters suit your personality or anything like that. Oh, yeah, okay, you gave up your data. I understand that. And you did it on purpose and willingly, and I get that. Yeah. But I didn't. Right. Just because I know you doesn't mean that I'm sharing my data. This is this is the fundamental problem with Facebook specifically, but uh, this is an industry-wide issue. Don't think this is just a problem with Facebook. All of the businesses, I'm looking at you, Google, all of the businesses that rely on collecting information about users also in some way or another share that data 
with a lot of people who then go off and use it in their own ways that Google or Facebook or whoever either didn't foresee or should have been able to foresee. Well, don't get me wrong. I think there are multiple layers to this. I, you know, Apple, mm-hmm. if you think that Apple doesn't collect data on its users, you're sadly mistaken, but it's not identifiable. Right. And they collect as little as possible because that's not their business model. Google collects more data on users, but it's way more anonymous than Facebook's data, which includes names, addresses, phone call logs, if you're an Android, and a host of other crap. Mm-hmm. If you want to go completely dark, fine. Just light your technology for the last 10 years on fire. That's fine. Turns out the Amish were onto something this whole time. They may, may very well have been because this is just this gigantic problem. You're right. And it's industry wide. And I, I think it is going to take legislation to fix it. I think Tim Cook is right. I think it would have been better had they been able to self-regulate. Mm-hmm. And I think Tim Cook is right again for saying, but now we're past that line. We are past that line. I think we really do need some sort of privacy bill of rights. But on top of that, I just want to mention this. So Zuckerberg, in the most recent remarks that I've been able to find, but again, he's testifying to Congress. And so this story is going to continue to evolve. Well, that's going to get ugly. Yeah, it's going to get really ugly. But but we'll see how he handles, you know, being around really old people <laughs> in a committee. We'll see. Old people with a poor grasp of technology, too. Yeah, that, that's a chronic problem, too. It's going to be fun. But in his latest remarks, he said, well, look, basically what happened was there were certain parts of your profile that have always been public to everyone. And I was aware of this, too. I'm a Facebook user. Mm-hmm. The cover photo that you use on your Facebook page, always been public. Your profile picture, always been public. And so that means when you put something on your profile, you know, the cute stickers that goes on your profile picture that says, I support babies or whatever, (laughs) that information is also available. Until recently, Facebook also made where you're from, where you work, who you're married to. So the information you filled out when you started Facebook, your age, your birthday, all that stuff was also publicly available. And the thing is that some of that information is fairly innocuous in and of itself. But when sophisticated data thieves gather this all together, they can then go connect that with your social security number, with your credit rating, with your employment history with everything else. And now they have a lot more information just from those breadcrumbs that Facebook foolishly put out and have now started taking steps to correct all that. But barn doors been open for 20 years now. So uh, yeah, and and that's part of the problem. And that's what he means by saying that basically these sophisticated data thieves now have pretty much everything they need to know about you. If you've been on Facebook for a while, because a lot of these breadcrumbs have been public for so long that they've been able to be connected with other things that have been public on other sites. You see? Yeah. Zuckerberg responded to Cook's remarks last week that he made at the event that released the new iPad. Yeah. The quote from Zuckerberg is somewhat telling. He said, you know, I find the argument that if you're not paying, somehow we don't care about you to be extremely glib, Zuckerberg said. And he said that to, to build a service which doesn't just serve rich people. A free ad-based model is essential. It kind of skipped out the whole point here, but there's more from this quote. Yeah. It says, I don't think at all that this means that we don't care about people. To the contrary, I think it's important that we don't all get Stockholm syndrome and let the companies that work hard to charge you more convince you they actually care more about you because that sounds ridiculous to me. Keep in mind that this is the same guy who 10 years ago called his users idiots. I would also point out to you that part of what he's saying is correct. A big company who doesn't 
rely on advertising for their business model may not necessarily, I think we all know businesses that don't rely on advertising for their business model and yet they don't care about us. Okay, that's fair. And Apple's a huge corporation. So they fall into this category as well. But what Zuckerberg danced around very deliberately is the idea of who's the product. Apple makes its money selling you hardware. So consumers, and this is very unusual for a company Apple size, consumers are still their main focus. Maybe they don't care about you individually, but consumers broadly are their interest, not shareholders. Again, very unusual. You're right. I should revise it. Less shareholders, but more because they've got to keep their customers happy because that's how they get away with charging a premium. Facebook, on the other hand, you are the product and never forget that zuckerberg to be finding ways around saying that but that's the truth yeah the the testimony it's got it's gonna be ugly like i said many column inches will be slain in the next two weeks discussing <laughs> sure this topic don't buy into the whole well this is only an issue because so and so it that's just distracting from the core problem this is a tech company issue yeah and if it has spillover effects into politics well i mean that's an issue clearly but it's not the core issue. It's the side effects of the core issue. You fix the disease and then you don't have to worry about the symptoms. I want to make one last point about this. I mentioned it on last week's Space Javelin, but Christopher Wiley, the guy who has blown the whistle on this, but was also the chief evildoer in this kind of deceptive gathering way more information about voters than they might be comfortable with in order to profile them sort of thing. He's from here in Victoria, B.C., where I am. <laughs> So the first company that he started was called Aggregate IQ, and that was started here in town. And it served whatever political party or whatever business wanted their services with absolutely no discrimination. Yeah. So there you go. So believe me, just because we're finding out about this story in association with certain elections or the Brexit question or something else, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't have gone to work for Martians. (laughs) If the Martians had sufficient money, yeah. is what I'm saying. Yep. Bear in mind. 10,000 quatloos for your personal data. <laughs> yeah. What was the name of that character? Oh, Quark? Quark. Oh, yeah, Quark. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, whole different thing. That's Gold Press Latin. Man. Come on. <laughs> well, I'm just saying he's... Same mindset. I get it. Moving on. NAB is happening as we speak. Yeah. And so it's impossible for us to tell you everything that came out of it. But there's a couple of things that we want to mention. One of them is that Apple's bringing out a new Final Cut Pro update, and that includes ProRes RAW format, improved closed captioning, and some other stuff. And it's coming out April 9th. Yeah, it's a point update. It's a 1041. So there's bound to be some bug fixes, but it does bring the it brings the the new file format to the application. So it'll be good. We'll see how it goes. The other thing that we should mention is Adobe has announced that they're updating Premiere Pro, of course, After Effects, CC, and all of that stuff. And they they did this just ahead of NAB. Yep, that's ready to go. That is out now. Just to remind you that Creative Cloud starts at $20 a month for single apps like Premiere Pro, but 50 bucks a month for the whole Kit and caboodle. Indeed. I often say this. uh, There's a big debate about subscription software, and I don't want to get into the whole thing right now, but I will say this. If you're the kind of person who needs all of Adobe's programs, that $50 a month bundle, you're making $50 or more, probably much more, in an hour. So... For us normal, occasional users who would like to fool around with Premiere Pro, that's one thing. People making a living at it, this subscription cost is nothing. It's nothing. Yeah. Photoshop back in the day, even on the old machines in, God, when did I see it? 
anyway, a long time ago when I was a much younger man, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it has never been inexpensive. It has always been aimed at the pro market that will use these tools to in turn make a ton of money. Yeah. It is what it is. And uh, frankly, I'm okay with subscription on this, to be honest with you. Uh, some quick notes. Let's run through a few quick notes while we have just a bit of time. Fortnite Battle Royale is now available on iOS for everybody. No invite required. Please stop sending me emails for invites. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Over on Space Channel, everybody knows I am like the world's worst gamer. I'm currently <sighs> I'm currently stuck on level 240 of Simon's Cat. <laughs> that's my that's my cred. Wow, you guys. Yeah, so we did a couple articles on the game when it first came out. We did another article talking about if you know somebody who's playing it, bug them for an invite because I have some now. Boy, was that a mistake! Shouldn't have done that. Yeah, it was a huge mistake. It's now available for everybody on iOS. Ha ha. <laughs> Spite me, Android users. And, and I've taken a look at it. It looks like a really fun game. Very beautifully done. I like it. Yep. I hope that this is a portent of things to come because I'm tired of match three games. Yeah. Now, if I can just get over my hatred of other people playing on my game, mm. <laughs> this battle royale thing looks like it might be fun. Apple has introduced a new feature called Business Chat and related to that business manager. And this is sort of, this flew under the radar during all that iPad talk and all that stuff. But this is going to be the next generation of customer service bots. <laughs> That's what it is. I think that this is important because I think that this speaks to Apple's involvement in enterprise. I think that had Apple not gotten involved with IBM and, and Cisco and Deloitte, I guess is how you say it. I'm still not even sure. Deloitte. Yeah, Deloitte. And SAP and all these other big partnerships. I don't think things like this would exist. Yeah. And I think it's important that they do. And I think that is important that Apple controls the entire process through. So it looks like it's built on MDM frameworks, device management frameworks, and it's got features already seen in device enrollment and volume purchase. The business manager is an amazing web-based IT management tool. And it's as far as the chat bot goes, as far as business chat goes, I think it's a, a good way to have accountability between a company and yourself. Instead of calling them to say, hey, I've got a problem with my widget I just bought. Well, you never get to that stage because you have to sit there on hold for an hour and a half and you give up. Right. And now you've got a chat that you can go to the store and they said, look, it said bring you to the store, buddy. Yeah. And now you can't let the drone at, at the mega home mart tell you any different. As long as the chat bot and other businesses have already started using more rudimentary sort of chat bots in, in a lot of situations, but this one seems like a more refined and sophisticated one. And as long as it won't pretend that it's Steve. <laughs> yes. Who's got a life outside the company. Yeah. Mm. It may very well. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> there's much more to be said about this and we'll get into it some other time when there's, when more of it's out there. But I think this is helping to put a lock on Apple and enterprise. It's the weirdest thing. Those of us who have been around the block a long time here would never in a million years have expected Apple to be so successful in enterprise. Mm. It's astonishing. It took iOS to break it open. Yeah. 15 years ago, I wouldn't have guessed a, a portable device like that was going to be Apple's foothold. And in particular, it's the iPad that's doing super well in enterprise. Although through that, the Mac laptops have gotten in. And of course, the phone is continues to be huge. But the iPads have done exceptionally well in enterprise. And what Apple wants is the same success they're having in enterprise. They want to transfer that to schools now. And uh, yeah, maybe between some of these tools that they're developing with this partnership with IBM, they might actually get there. While we're on the topic, Malcolm has written a series of comparison pieces comparing the new iPad to really ancient iPads to the current lineup and the last batch of iPad Pro. 
shows. There's three different articles. Mm-hmm. You know, you could argue that we could have done it all in one, but then it'd be a really long article. Yeah. Nobody would read the whole thing because we're all attention challenged. Steven Silver has one that he compared it to a higher end Chromebook and we'll run that on Friday. So shortly after the podcast comes out, you'll be able to read that. But the pieces are worth looking at if for nothing else to get a feel for where the new iPad sits exactly in the lineup. Yeah. So we're looking at an iPad that handily disposes anything non-pro before it. Yeah. If you have a first generation iPad Pro, you are on par with it performance wise, just from a processor standpoint, but your Pro probably has more features like ProMotion or... Oh, sure. Better screen, better, more speakers. The screen being laminated to the glass, this is not a feature that any consumer ever notices. But if you are drawing with an Apple Pencil, you'll be able to see with the budget iPad, you'll be able to see a small gap between your pen tip and the thing you're creating. And with the iPad Pro, you don't. Attention to detail, stuff like that is very important. Speaking of Malcolm, though, before we get into that, I want to mention that he's also written a really outstanding article. He writes lots of them, but this one I really, really enjoyed. And it was talking about the difference between TFT LED, OLED, and the forthcoming micro LED. We hear these terms all the time, but we're not really sure, too sure what the differences are or why you would want one over the other. He really breaks this down beautifully. It's not necessarily an important topic today. Oh, it's going to become one. Yeah, yeah, it really is. As Apple looks around for other screen technologies to use in their products, like, for instance, OLED and the Apple Watch when it first shipped. Well, I'll give you an example. Now that I know that micro LED, which is still based on that essentially that LED technology that OLED uses, now that I know this, I also understand that it can be thinner, and that could mean a future watch could be thinner. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and even more power efficient? Oh, this sounds great. And, of course, uh, Apple's researching, at least, sort of looking into whether this technology could be scaled up to larger devices like, oh, you know, their bestseller. <laughs> and their second bestseller. Or even, for that matter, the Pro Displays that they're talking about. It's interesting to me that micro-LED has already in use now, but for really large video displays, like that thing at the stadium, micro-LED is the scaling down version. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how this works out. But if you would like to stay up on the technology, and you should, Malcolm's explainer was super good. And I'll toss in the show notes for you. A couple of last things that I want to mention real quick. Mike and I talked about this earlier on our other gig, but Foxconn profits reported very high on sales of, ta-da, the iPhone 10. We keep seeing these stories that saying the iPhone 10 is not selling that well. Well, somebody tell Foxconn because it's going to come as news to them. I also think this might be a slight breakdown between Wall Street and what Apple expects. I, they don't really talk. <laughs> no, they don't. So I, I think Wall Street says, oh, my God, the iPhone 10 is going to sell this many. And Apple says, OK, whatever you think, buddy. Yeah. And Apple will meet its own internal sales guidance and we'll get results like we did last quarter that there's just a strange response from Wall Street from it. As usual, though, I mean, any quarterly announcement, Wall Street gets flipped out about one thing or another. Well, they love drama, don't they? This is one of the reasons why Apple does not report sales breakdowns. Right. Is just this kind of this kind of nitpicking and just detail thing that Wall Street likes. There's just no reason for them to have it. Yep. So and you know, they say that, you know, give their competitors extra insight on what's going on. I think they're right. I, th- I think that I think that these sales breakdowns would make a great deal of information and a great deal of adjustment possible by competitors. And I don't think Apple wants any part of that. No. And nor should they. It's uh, detrimental to their own business. But here's the bottom line. This is all you really need to know. I will break this all down for you in a, almost a single sentence. Here it is. Tim Cook said the iPhone 10 has been the best selling iPhone model since it was introduced. 
There is no reason to think that that is not still true today. Yeah. And between the three flagship phones, the iPhone 8, the iPhone 8 Plus, and the iPhone 10, Apple is very, 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 very likely to sell more of them overall than they sold last year. Yeah. There you go. That's it. Anything else you see about, well, the iPhone 10 has been a big disappointment, Apple. Oh, how many times have we heard this with some other product? Uh, just... Well, we heard it all through November and December. Yeah. And it's nonsense. But even while that's going on, the services business is making more money. The Apple Watch is a bigger hit than people realized. That was the other thing people used to wring their hands about. The Apple Watch is a dud. No, no, it's not. <laughs> One of the things in 10.13.4 High Sierra that we forgot to mention earlier, but we'll mention now, is official eGPU support has arrived. We knew this was coming. We've talked about it before on this podcast. We've talked about it on Space Javelin. But there's actually a list of the supported cards. And Mike did a really nice breakdown for us last week. Can you run that through again for us? Any of the enclosures using the TI-83 chipset work. Apple has a couple of blessed ones. It's really not, we really don't need to cover the blessed enclosures. Now, as far as the cards, it's the Radeon RX 570, the RX 580. The RX 580 shipped in the developer's kit. Right. The Radeon Pro WX 7100, 9100. Right. And the Radeon RX Vega 56 and 64. I've got a Vega 56 in my eGPU. And the Vega Frontier Edition Air. And the Frontier Edition Air, yes. Um, good luck finding a video card yeah. at a reasonable price. That's kind of problematic these days because the, the Bitcoin miners. Bitcoin yeah. miners. Now, if you can get your hands on one of these cards, those are the supported cards. NVIDIA, nada. This is late breaking news. While Apple does not officially have any NVIDIA support, the people at eGPU.io are working on a workaround and the first efforts have been completed. Ooh. I will have more on that at some point in the future as it develops a little bit more, but realize that with this thing, every time Apple does an update, does from 10.34 to 10.35, not only will you need to reapply the patch, but you also have to wait for NVIDIA to release its drivers for that version of the operating system. We should also mention that some cards that worked initially when they were first testing this out are no longer supported, like the AMD RX 560. Yep. And Thunderbolt 1 and 2 support has been completely dropped. I don't think Thunderbolt 1 was ever supported, but Thunderbolt 2 support has been dropped. They actually have a fix for that too. What? Yep. The the eGPU.io people have a fix for that as well. And that's kind of shaky right now, but it works. They are clever. Yep, they sure are. <laughs> but basically, if you want to stick to Apple's recommendations, then that's probably the smartest move. Yeah, honestly, that's my recommendation as well. It's great that they have fixes, but you know what? Just buy an RX 580 and the enclosure of your choice. I like the Mantis one. Mm -hmm. Apple likes the Power Color Devil Box, which I've spoken about before. Yes, I like the name, certainly. Well, yeah, I don't like the tattoo that's on the front of it. I don't like the blue ground effect lighting in the box either. Wasn't it kind of noisy as well? It was a bit noisier than the Mantis boxes too. So here's the thing. If I worked at a Fortune 500 company, I wouldn't be upset to be spotted with the Mantis box on my desk. Okay. There you go. How about that? That's a fair assessment. But yeah, if you want to avoid trouble going down the line, because this is new technology that's just recently been officialized. Officialized? I don't think that's a word. It's been blessed. Yeah, there you go. It's been anointed by Cupertino. Right. Anointed by Pope Cook. The oh, gee, we're going to get email now. Oh, yeah, we sure are. And you want to find that list. There's a handy link on Apple Insider. You want to find that list and stick to those cards. That's the bottom line. If you can pry one out of the hands of a Bitcoin miner. Yep. <laughs> All right. That wraps it up for the Apple Insider podcast for this week. Charles, where can you find us? You can normally find Mike and I being cantankerous 
humorous and snarky and so on over on spacejavelin.com. It's a podcast sort of like this one, or at least sort of like what we've made this one this week. (laughs) (laughs) And it's on SoundCloud and iTunes and the usual places. So come and pay a visit. We'll be talking about some of this stuff that we just talked about on the next episode, but we'll try to find different things to say just to keep you Apple Insider people amused. Yep. You can find us on Monday mornings and you can find my stuff and Malcolm's stuff and everybody else's stuff over at appleinsider.com. But until then, we will see you next week, everybody. Thank you once again, all the gang at Apple Insider for allowing me back into the building. <laughs> yeah, back into your box, Charles. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I really appreciate it. And thank you very much. Good night. Good night.